Whether you're just looking to stay warm during a hunt or need maximum concealment, the clothing you wear can make or break a hunt. At MidwayUSA.com, we understand hunting clothing has come a long way with more meticulously crafted camo patterns, advanced scent control technologies, and weatherproof options to withstand the elements. Hunters have to wait until their favorite season, but shouldn't wait on gear, which is why MidwayUSA offers super-fast shipping. When you're ready for your next system, log on to MidwayUSA.com. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal, develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super-fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Mobile hunters, are you looking to make the move to saddle hunting this year? Or maybe you just want to add a few new pieces of gear or upgrade your current saddle gear. If that's the case, then head over to tetherednation.com where they've got all mobile hunters covered. Whether you're new to saddle hunting or an old timer, Tethered is your one-stop saddle shop. From saddles to ropes, sticks, ascenders, whatever it is you need, they have you covered. I've personally been using their gear for the past three seasons. Now, my base setup consists of the Phantom Saddle and the Predator Platform. And if you're wondering why, I've chosen to use their gear above all else. Here's the cliff notes. They're innovative and pushing the mobile hunting forward overall. They cut no corners and prioritize the safety and performance of their gear. They care about the community that they've created and their gear allows me to hunt free. And above all else, I like to support good people doing good work. If you're interested in upping your mobile hunting game, then head to tetherednation.com. This podcast is brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. Skull Brew Coffee roasts premium single-origin coffee guaranteed to deliver the freshest coffee directly to your doorstep. The kicker? They're 2% for conservation certified and donate 10% of their proceeds back to organizations who support the interests of our hunting community. So go to SkullBrewCoffee.com and pick up one of their three killer roasts and fuel your hunt and fill more tags with Skull Brew Coffee. Welcome to the Truth From The Stand Deer Hunting Podcast brought to you by Skull Brew Coffee Company. I'm your host, Clint Campbell, and you're listening to episode number 241. Today I'm joined by my buddies, Jared and Brian from the Habitat Podcast, so stay tuned. What is up, everyone? Happy Wednesday to you. Hope you're doing well. Hope you are feeling fine. Actually, in all truthfulness, as you guys are listening to this, I'm feeling excellent. I'm actually going to give you an excellent, not just fine, feeling excellent because as you're listening to this, I am sitting on a beach somewhere on vacation, probably sipping a beverage without a care in the world. Maybe it's by the pool. Not exactly, not exactly sure where I'll be at as you're listening to this, but as a good podcast host, as a good whitetail podcast host, I wanted to make sure you guys got your weekly fix. So I jammed this thing in the week before I left because uh, I'm, I'm going to do zero work while I'm on vacation of the normal nine to five variety or even as the uh, deer work variety. That's uh, that's not completely true because I probably will check in on some cell cameras. Um, but otherwise, I'm not going to do any deer work, any work work during the course of this uh this week, just going to spend it with the with the family, do a little R&R, kick it by the beach, by the bay, do some eating, 
some adult beverages probably are in the uh, in the forecast. But so with that, we're not going to drag this up front out. I do have two quick pieces of housekeeping to do for you guys before we jump into today's podcast. So Velvet Fest, you know it, you love it. Our buddies over at Excess Outdoor Gear kind of do this Velvet Fest jammer every year, and it's really the official unofficial slash official start to to deer season and they help everyone get the uh, the ball rolling for their summer scouting so if you don't have cameras out in the woods now is the perfect time to do it and uh from july 21st which was just a few weeks ago they're running this uh, program through august 11th and they'll have some awesome prizes for for anyone that's using the using the hashtag velvet fest on social media uh, to share any of your whitetail adventures outdoors. So also if you're in the market for a trail camera, Velvet Fest is the perfect opportunity to get ready for this season. Exodus will be sending out exclusive savings through their email newsletter throughout the campaign. So you're going to want to make sure to head over to exodusoutdoorgear.com and sign up for their newsletter. Every single camera order comes with a random prize card that you'll have to scratch off and those will reveal prizes. And then I've also been told that there's some pretty huge deals. So you won't want to miss out on that. So, but to sweeten the pot even more, every single order offer uh, offers you the opportunity to receive a limited edition hashtag velvet fest laser engraved camera. If you're the lucky winner or lucky recipient rather of this camera, you'll receive a $1,000 gift card for the Exodus store. That's right. You heard it a smooth G note for the Exodus store. So you can pick up some renders, some lifts, some, some tracks, whatever it is you need to put in your arsenal. So there's a lot of this campaign. So you just head over, do yourself a favor to the website, exodusoutdoorgear.com. Make sure you sign up for the newsletter. Cause you're not going to want to miss out on all the stuff they have, go, uh, have going on. If you're not familiar with Exodus, I find it hard to believe if you are a listener of this podcast for any length of time, over the last six years, they have consistently shown they build kick-ass quality trail cameras that flat-out work. And, of course, the best trail camera warranty, period, bar none. Every single camera is backed by a five-year warranty, even comes with theft and damage coverage. That's right. Literally half a decade, you're covered by the Exodus five-year warranty. But more than likely, you won't need it because their cameras are already built to last. So be sure to take part in the Velvet Fest celebration and tag me and Exodus in your outdoor adventures because we'll want to check in and see what you guys have going on. Also, last but not least, hunting season is, is coming up here. You have your Western hunts that are going to kick off here in like the next, some people probably like two-ish weeks. If you are planning a backcountry hunt, any type of travel hunt, or even hunting camp, don't suffer from shitty coffee. Head to skullbrewcoffee.com. Use the promo code TFTS21, save yourself some cash, and get some portable pour-over packs and carry killer coffee with you. Every purchase that uh, is made on the SkullBrewCoffee.com website, a portion of those proceeds go to help support conservation. So head over there, pick yourself up some kick-ass coffee, and you'll be ready to roll for the season. With that, we're going to jump into today's podcast. I have my buddies Brian and Jared on from the Habitat podcast. So a little bit of change of pace uh, for this session. We're oftentimes on this show really focusing on public land hunting, DIY stuff, and a little change of course here because these the, these two fellows kind of double down and focus on habitat updates, land management, and things like that. So the way we kind of structured this is they both travel to hunt uh, Brian's in PA, Jared in Michigan. So two high pressure States. So they know what it's all about to hunt high pressure areas. Um, but they also travel to hunt as well. And so what, what we kind of did is we talked a little bit about travel hunting and kind of getting a sense of, you know, what they've learned through habitat management that helps them when they're doing these travel hunts and things that they've picked up along the way that not just apply to helping manage property and, 
habitat and things like that, but how they're able to use these learnings when they're traveling to, you know, lesser known places and, and, and places out of state and encountering terrain that they may or may not be familiar with. They have kind of an analog or a experience just in terms of surveying property, ground, habitat, topography, et cetera, that gives them uh, a boost, if you will, will, when they're traveling out of state. So with that, we're going to go ahead and jump into today's podcast. As always, I want to thank you all for listening. All right, folks, welcome back to another episode of the Truth from the Stand Deer Hunting Podcast. And today we have a little bit of a different twist on the uh, on the podcast today. Usually we're always kind of focusing on you know, DIY public land stuff. And it's, and really it's just because that's what I do the most of, of right now. You know, if you've listened to the podcast and in it's infancy, whenever I first uh, started this, whatever long it's been now, like six years ago, you know, a lot of the podcast was, was focused a lot around our family farm and doing habitat work and things like uh, things like that on the property that my, my family owns. And so that was a lot of really where I, you know, I, I guess when I got serious about deer hunting, maybe is one way to say it, where I really started cutting my teeth and learning more intimately things about the deer woods and how it was going to help me become a better archer or a better, better bow hunter. And so today I have on two buddies uh, who are knee deep, elbow deep, we might even say, into habitat, uh, habitat work, but also do a lot of DIY travel hunting. And so thought it'd be cool to have my buddies Jared and Brian on from the Habitat podcast to talk some habitat, but then also how we relate it back to things that we see when we might travel out of state and when we're hunting public land and how it kind of helps your overall learning curve and understanding habitat and how it relates to, to deer and what they need throughout the, throughout the different season. So, uh, how you fellas doing? Doing good, doing good. Thanks for, thanks for having us on Clint. Good to be back chatting with you again and, uh, congrats on six years of the podcast. Wow. Yeah, I know. It's like, I'm, it's, we're almost like an old married couple at this point. You know, it's, <laughs> I fight with, <laughs> yeah, I fight with it on a weekly basis. You know, um, <laughs> it's funny cause you know, you guys can probably, you know, I guess kind of commiserate with me or, or have empathy at least in, in this regard. It's like, I love doing the podcast. I love nothing more than, than I look forward to every, you know, the day of the week that I get to kind of get on the the line and do something like this, where I just get to kind of take an hour to two hours of my day and talk nothing but deer hunting. Cause I think about it all day while I'm at work, but it's all the behind the scenes, like logistics stuff that is just after six years, you're like, good Lord, man, can I just hire someone to do that? <laughs> <laughs> no kidding. You know, it's like the editing, the scheduling of podcasts, the rescheduling. It's, it's just all the tedious stuff, the blog, the blog posts and the social, but it's all that stuff that you, that you don't like, but, you know, the, the time that I get to spend with dudes in different parts of the country and talking deer hunting, just, it makes up for it. It more than makes up for it. So I'm happy to do it at the, at the end of the day. But, uh, you know, for folks out there that don't maybe know as much about you as, as maybe I do, you know, or just for, I guess, for the benefit of the, of the listeners, if you wouldn't mind, just give me a little bit of background about, about yourself, you know, where you guys are from, what you guys do for a living. And then the other part is too, because you both live in different places, how you guys ended up meeting. And that's, let's start with Jared first. Sure, sure. Well, I'm from the great state of Michigan, um, where we have a lot of deer, but they don't get very old. Mm -hmm. And uh, a lot of hunting pressure here. Um, I'm 34 now. Uh, been been hunting since I was, I think, 12 was the first time I could legally hunt. And just been obsessed with it, you know, like like the rest of your listeners and, and our listeners. Just think about it all day long, every day. And just, you know, just have the bug. Um, mm -hmm. I started out in, in marketing, 
right out of college. And then I moved into sales after that. So that's my day job. And then, you know, obviously run the podcast on, on the side at night after hours type thing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Very, so yeah. very familiar with that. Brian, how about you, man? Yeah. I'm from Western Pennsylvania, born and raised. Uh, I'll be 47 here in just a few short months. Been hunting since I was 12. Um, learned most of my hunting stuff from family members and hunting magazines back then. I'm kind of the dinosaur that <laughs> didn't have the internet when I started hunting. So, uh, just been doing that since I was 12. You had to be 12 in PA back then. And, uh, just gotta say, it's kind of nice, Clint, to have another PA guy here to to kind of stack the odds against Jared for a change. <laughs> I know, right? Well, I, I was just going to say, you know, there's two PA guys, but we can all at least, uh, we're all at least aligned on the idea that we ha- have, uh, both of our states have a lot of hunting pressure and, um, Amen. you know, a lot of hunting pressure, which presents challenges, but also opportunities to sharpen your skills, you know? Um, it does. Uh, you know, yeah, man. I mean, there's a little bit of an unintended benefit to that, right? It's like, I've had conversations with guys about that, whether it's my buddy Greg in Jersey, just some of these high pressure states, you know, if you're able to get on deer and you're able to find some success in some way, shape, or form in some of these states, I don't want to say it makes it easier when you go to states that have a, you know, a more target rich opportunity, you know, might be one way to say it. But I feel maybe I just feel more confident going into it. I don't know. I don't know if you guys have the same kind of feeling. Yeah, yeah we, absolutely. We do. Yeah. I know that I, I give Michigan a bad rap, but, um, it's all in, in jest. There's a plenty of, uh, decent deer running around here to, to hone your skills on and, and a lot of good hunters that come out of the state too. Yeah. Michigan's definitely one of those places where there is a ton of just really sharp woodsmen, you know, not, and I'm not just talking about the guys that people know about. There's plenty of, you know, what I'll call undercover guys that no one's ever really heard of unless you're really kind of in the network. And I'm not saying the outdoor industry network. I'm saying just like the local hunting community, the, the you know, what I would call the underground, if it were music, right. It's like, <laughs> you know, before they, before, any, before anyone else knew them type of thing. Um, but there's some killers in, in Michigan and man, Southern Michigan has some, has some decent deer too, man. I've seen some folks out there with some trail camera pictures and stuff like that, where this, you know, the deer that I've seen, at least in that area of Michigan, though, aren't, uh, isn't anything to sneeze at, so to speak. That's a fact. We have we have the genetic potential. We have the the soil in southern Michigan, great farmland, rich soils. Just uh, have a lot of pressure, and you know that that can be uh, challenging to let deer reach their full potential. Yeah, and then Brian out in Western PA, as far as PA goes, you're kind of in the um, I won't say the big buck area, but if you were going to go somewhere in Pennsylvania and hunt and try to kill a good try to kill a really good deer and have the better odds, that would be the part of the state you would want to head to. Yeah, agreed for sure. Um, a little bit closer to Ohio. I don't know if that has anything to do with it, but uh, always plenty of uh, Pope and young bucks to chase with a bow around here for sure. And uh, I noticed, I, I try to make that excuse to people that I'm from PA, but uh, our buddy Steve Shirk up there is <laughs> yeah. posting all that stuff online. Everybody's like, Psh. Don't tell me there's no big deer over in PA. <laughs> yeah, well, it's it's funny because I was, again, not to bring Greg up again, but he and I were doing, we did a podcast a couple months ago, and I know I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but, you know, he was like, you might want to stop talking about Pennsylvania and some of the good deer that, you know, either Steve has seen or, you know, I actually even, in eastern PA, in certain pockets, I managed to find some um, really good deer 
uh, you know, really high caliber deer, not just for this area, but there are a few, and I've mentioned this before that I, I would have shot in, there were two in particular I would have shot in Iowa that I, that I was on last year and not that they were like Boone and Crockett, you know, type, but you know, they were shooters in just about any state. And what we were kind of joking about, and there's a little bit of truth to it, which was you keep talking about it and people are going to stop passing through Pennsylvania on their way to Ohio to buy an over the counter tag and PA you know, and just shorten that trip because the truth be told, we've both, well, three of us have hunted Ohio and, and I didn't start hunting Ohio until I don't know what it was like six years ago or something like that. And even last year, uh, when I was there and like, I guess the year prior, even in those couple of years, the hunting pressure in the places that I was at was noticeably, you know, uh, more intense than the, than the previous years. And so it's no longer kind of that place where you can go hunt some public and, not do your homework and just hop into a piece of public and expect to not have a ton of pressure. Like you're going to run into pressure if you're hunting public land in, in Ohio nowadays. That's just, that's just a fact in my opinion. Yeah, absolutely. Jared, do you have the same, same kind of feeling? Yeah, I think, um, I haven't hunted a lot of public down there. I've been, uh, lucky enough to get on a lease here or there. And I don't know what, if that's worse or, or better sometimes because, we still have the same trespassing issues and, and, uh, run into a lot of guys at the hotel doing the same thing we are. So hundred percent, I mean, it gets pounded. It got popular a few years back and Clint, I've been hunting it probably as long as you have, you know, five, six, seven years, something like that. And, um, yeah, maybe everybody should go over to Western PA instead, you know? Hey, easy. I think Southern <laughs> Michigan might be a better place. Like if there you go, <laughs> no, Come I don't want to make it. Guys. I don't want to make it sound like, you know, complaining. There's definitely great deer to kill in Ohio. Still, there's definitely, you can still find some pockets, but it was just noticeable from the first time that I went there to the most recent time that I went there, that you were definitely seeing more trucks. There were just more traffic on the road. You were seeing more hunters. Um, you were running into more stands that were in the woods and more trail cameras that were up. Just, it was more of everything, you know? And so, right. um, which for me, I shifted gears and started thinking about some, some other States, but before we get too far gone into just talking deer in general, I want to get a little recap on how, uh, how your, uh, how your seasons went last year. So Brian, give me a, give me a little update of how things, uh, how things went for you out there in Western PA and beyond. Well, the season started out with some really high hopes. I had plans to uh on a lease that i'd gotten on for the first time it was a new lease that i hadn't been on before uh the year previous to that uh two of the guys that were on a lease killed two really nice bucks in the 150 range hmm. and uh had some great leftovers that survived the year and then uh we had a really nice buck sort of in my neighborhood here in western pa that was I don't know. He was, he was certainly pushing 150 if he wasn't over 150. Mm -hmm. And uh, I drew a Kansas tag as well and also had plans to go hunt with a buddy in Wyoming who's got some property in eastern Wyoming for some whitetails. So I had four buck tags in, in four pretty good areas that I was pretty excited about, but uh, just didn't work out. I mean, I, I hunted my rear end off, uh, went to Kansas for... I think I was originally supposed to be there for seven days. I ended up staying 10 and literally grinded it out every day. Um, had a nice buck come in in Ohio. Thought I'd made a great shot. He did duck when I released the arrow. Uh, hit him a little higher than where I was aiming because of the he jumped the string. 
and uh, didn't recover them. So I uh, ended up eating four buck tags, and in, in, in what I thought was going to be a, a dynamite season was was kind of of a letdown. And and since I stayed longer in Kansas, I never made it to Wyoming. So yeah, it's just one of those years where uh, you know you got to ride the roller coaster. Yeah, it's all ups and downs in this game. So. You just got to take it as it comes. Yeah, I'm familiar with eating tags. That's uh, I, I like to say <laughs> that if, I have it on my business card as my specialty. Actually, that's my sub specialty. It's I'm a marketer slash I love it buck tag eater. You know, so but uh, Jared, how was your how was your season, man? How did it shake out? You know, I I also had some some pretty high hopes off the bat. You know, Brian and I we we get real excited about this stuff, just like you do. Talk about it all year, and and one of my goals was to hunt my michigan small property that i own and, and kill one on there and well i didn't see one on there uh when i was in the stand so that was fun and then um i went to northern michigan for some public land stuff during gun season actually grazed the doe up there in rifle country so you know i was starting to sound like like brian here for a minute and it just him and i are just you know commiserating and uh, sooner but sure enough i had illinois in my back pocket um went down there actually uh shot the biggest buck i i've ever killed so it was uh about 153 inch mainframe eight point so nice. i was pretty tickled with him and still am to this day um yeah. ended up just you know your season can change in just a second you guys know this just gotta hang in there and hang in there and brian he hunted his tail off and uh and sometimes the cars just don't fall how you want them to yeah no i hear that man i would give up uh i would uh I would have a rough long season to, to, to close it out on a great deer at the end. You know, that's, yeah. you know, you feel like you earned it. That was kind of, you know, the, uh, I guess the Iowa hunt that I had there a few years ago, similar type of thing, long trip, long hunt, last day, last like hour of light, <laughs> you know, but it made it all, it, it made it all kind of, kind of worth it. You know, you know Brian, I'm curious, man, we're, we're, you don't have to tell me specifically, obviously, but what kind of country were you hunting? in in kansas were you in areas where there were going to be some you know creek bottoms with some you know trees you were going to be able to get into or were you in more of like the the plains country where you were going to be more ground hunting glassing type of approach yeah so we were just west of wichita which is the south east part of the state um a lot of uh flat farm ground it did have some deep ravines with some creek bottoms and some uh different timber lining the creek bottoms for stands and things but uh, mostly cotton farms wheat farms things like that right right yeah the other reason i ask because i'm i actually drew this year and i'm headed there this year and uh okay i've been trying to pick people's brains trying to figure i mean you know i know where i'm going obviously and kind of picked an area that doesn't have a lot of trees it's a lot of just flat country so i don't know how much tree hunting i'm going to be doing necessarily um but stoked to get out there, out there regardless. But I want to shift gears really quick because I'm always curious how people get in, get into this because, you know, everyone who listens to this podcast, you know, loves, loves deer hunting. And, you know, some folks get really into the, you know, I know people who are really passionate about deer hunting that want nothing to do with the habitat side of things. Right. And then I know people who are super into deer hunting that they just absolutely love habitat side of things. I kind of fell somewhere in the middle. There was a period of time where I really, really liked it. And then it was, you know, and it was probably the situation more so than anything. That's probably what, you know, a lot of people's experiences are. I was on a family property. I was doing a lot of the work, but wasn't reaping a lot of the benefit because a lot of other folks were using it whenever I 
didn't have time to be there, so to speak. So they were, you know, benefiting from the work that I was, that I was putting in, but how did you guys get into the habitat side of things? Was it something that you've always kind of done? Have you always been around it or was it just something you kind of, you know, started learning about and just kind of jumped in, you know, head over heels? This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Dakova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots as well as free returns and exchanges and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Yeah, I think um, how I got into it was just hunting all public land in Michigan my whole life, not having a ton of, you know, the great encounters that some of my buddies had on their private land farms and and then just hearing about, you know, other people having more success so i kind of had this goal in my head i was i want to buy my own farm nobody in my property i'm sorry family owned any property it's just kind of a goal of mine starting in like middle school high school i want to own you know 40 acres someday or, or whatever so that's kind of how i got interested in it and then i found the qdma forums way back when before like facebook and all that stuff all the forums were the way to go um and then i i just followed some people's land management threads on there where they'd buy a a 40 acre or 80 acre chunk it'd be you know maybe rated a two out of ten and you sit there and follow along with them throughout the years they plant a food plot plant fruit trees um you know hinge cut tsi work whatever it's just mesmerizing how you could up that two out of ten to a five six seven eight over a few years and guess what you're hunting like follows along suit with it it's, it's pretty awesome um so that's kind of how i got intrigued in it and then once i saved up and bought my own first property then it was just full force after that right brian how about you man what was the what what kind of got you interested yeah sort of similar to jared's uh, beginnings uh, my dad took us hunting and fishing and camping anytime that he could and most of our hunting was done on game lands um the only piece of property outside of the house that we lived in that my parents had was a little lot in the campground and uh that was a lot of fun as a kid we were close to a big state park that we could fish and hunt and uh just a little bit too crowded in the campground and i always thought man if i ever get my own camp i'd like to have a little bit of elbow room and uh one thing led to another i started shooting traditional archery and met a fella from ohio who actually owned his own farm and uh that was probably early 2000s uh late 90s something somewhere around there uh, he invited me out and said, Hey, if you don't mind, give me a hand with some stuff around the farm. You're more than welcome to come hunt Ohio if you'd like. So I started learning food plots, doing some simple things with him back then. It was just, you know, clover and things like that. But, uh, that got the fire started and 
I, I wanted to have my own piece someday and kind of saved up and, and eventually made that dream happen. What was the biggest, once you got a piece, like what was, you know, cause you know, I'm trying to figure out how to say this, I guess, where did you start? Right. Cause when I look at my family farm or whatever, cause my dad has a piece too. And, um, you know, it's, a, it's a little smaller. It, it's, it's about 60 acres and my father-in-law has a piece. It's like 260. And that was one I kind of started with, but there's a lot of folks that hunt it, like, you know, and hunt it all different times. And my dad is really just my dad and I when you know, and I maybe hunt it once a year. I'll go back during like gun season and hunt it the opening day with him or something like, cause he, he lives in the Carolinas and I, I'm trying to figure out what to do. Cause it's more so, you know, he's getting a little older. I want to try to set him up with some good hunting opportunities, you know, when he comes up to where he can have some good hunts and stuff like that. And so I've been kind of thinking about what I want to do with that piece. Cause he's basically giving me like, you know, a clean slate and was like, whatever you want to do here. Like, I don't care. Like you want to, you want to cut trees down, cut trees down. You want to plant food plots, plant, plant food plots. You want to burn, burn, you know, he's like, you know, do whatever it is you want to do. Just don't burn the cabin down. It's basically <laughs> the, the only rule. And, uh, so how, but it's a little bit, you know, I've always kind of thought, I was like, Oh, it'd be awesome to have a place I could do that. It'd be kind of fun. But now that he's kind of said, Hey, do whatever it is you, you think you want to do here. It's going to make it better. I'm not quite sure where to start, you know, cause I don't want to, I don't want to mess anything. I know nothing's permanent necessarily, but I also want to make some really choiceful decisions because it's not a huge piece. And I want to do things that are going to enhance, but not be something that we have to maintain a lot because I live three hours away from it. So how do you kind of start when you get a property? Like what are the first things you're kind of thinking about and what are you trying to break down and, and understand? Sure. So a big part of it's your goals. I mean, everybody has different goals for their property. Some people might be thinking about future timber harvest for getting some um, money back on their investment later. Some people are thinking strictly just for deer. Some people want to have a mixed use property. So that's sort of where you got to start from there. Uh, Mm -hmm. If you're talking just straight deer hunting, um, is it, is it all wooded right now or is it a mix of pasture? Nah, it's, it's a little, it's a little mix, right? It, it's got, uh, 60 acres and I would say probably 40 of it is, eh, I would say probably close to 50 of it is timber. And there's a small, probably one acre, um, field that would be kind of like a plot. Like I've planted it in the past. Um, and then there's this really weird, I don't even know how to describe it. There's a, there's a slope that kind of goes down to this like small Creek bottom where that other field is, but it's kind of sporadically peppered with just small kind of pine trees. And then what looks like what I kind of refer to as almost like mesquite, like, or it's like these thorny, like tree, small bush tree things. Like they're really weird. I don't even know what they are. They've got these really sharp stickers on them, but it almost reminds you of like, desert like it's almost like crp grass with like these weird sticker trees that are in the middle of it that just kind of pop up out of nowhere and that's probably like a good you know i don't know probably six acres um that kind of leads up to like the top of like the you know the the little mountain it's not a mountain it's like really kind of a ridge um and then there's another small like little cleared area that used to be like a campsite that my uncle owned the property previously that's that's down at the bottom near the near the creek bottom as well so it's a lot of timber and it's a lot of area that could be um that could be uh planted so to speak and then there it's road front on the uh east the entire east side of it 
Okay. And by yeah. road front, I mean like township gravel road, you know, sure. type of situation, not, not a highway or anything like that. So if we're strictly talking deer, uh, with the exception of mature oaks that drop acorns, if you've got too many mature trees that are blocking out the sunlight, and there's no acorns falling in that short period that we know that they drop for a few weeks. There's really nothing for the deer there, and they're only going to be there occasionally for the acorns. So we we preach opening up as much hardwoods as you're comfortable with. We always talk about uh, contacting the local forester first just mm-hmm. to make sure uh, you get somebody in there that understands the the values of the different trees and, and what you should be cutting, what you shouldn't be cutting. And, uh, but sunlight's a huge thing. Uh, Jared and I started this journey a while back before we even met with the habitat improvements. And we've reached the same conclusion that most guys that have been doing this long enough is you just, you don't cut enough. And it it seems like even when you're cutting as much as you can, it's not enough because deer live from five feet and below, you know, they don't, they don't spend a lot of time in those, those big open forests. So we we have a land plan service that Jared and I visit a lot of places around the country and uh, do exactly that for what you're asking and that's that's one of the biggest things we preach is sunlight for sure. Right, Jared, what do you what do you think, man? Yeah, I would echo what Brian's saying, and I also think it depends on what your property is really showing once we get some boots on the ground. I think, you know, I don't know how far you are from Brian, but he should probably jet over there and, and walk it with you, you know, and right. uh, and see what's going on, see what the lowest hole in the bucket is, um, whether it's whether it's pressure, whether it's, you know, the sunlight, whether it's lack of food. We kind of dissect it from there. Right. Normally where I always start is, like Brian said, the goals and a plan. Uh, you can take a year and observe and and watch and see what they're already doing. I bet you already know all of that. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we can kind of see based on the history that, that you can tell us and what we're seeing when we're there with sign, um, start recommending, you know, certain maybe sight line blocking things cover. I mean, I'm a huge fan of cover Mm -hmm. and some of this stuff seems a little obvious to us when we, when we get there, but a lot of people aren't, you know, as habitat nerdy as we are. So it seems like <laughs> we just got to we just got to show up and then we look and we're like, oh, well, this, this and that obvious fixes, you know, and it's like, OK, well, I didn't know that. And it, so it's just a lot of it. You got to kind of it, it just depends on the lowest hole in your bucket on that property, to be honest with you. Mm-hmm. That's interesting way to look at it. You know, I think a lot of people probably miss that where it's like they're looking for the home run where it's like just to your point, fix the leaky hole. You know, and, and it'll, it'll improve yeah, step one at least. Yep. Yeah. It'll improve just from that. It's interesting. You mentioned acorns. Cause the, I think one of the things, so I'll, I'll answer a couple of things that you guys kind of posed there. One, I think we've, I think my dad has had it now for this might be like his fourth year, fourth season that he had it the whole first year he had it. I ran trail cameras on it, never hunted it just, and neither did he, I just watched the deer for a year, you know, I had cameras out 365 and just wanted to see how they moved. What, did they, you know, what were their lines of travel, you know, how, what time were they getting to certain areas? So I could, you know, backtrack maybe how far away they're bedded, like the, you know, all those normal types of things that you would do to try to learn, you know, what the deer are doing on your property. Um, and then from there, like what I realized after, I guess, like the second year is that it's really a rut property. And like, I really don't see bucks often on it. 
until you hit that like mid to late October timeframe. Like there's usually one that might be spending summer there. Usually I find one good deer every summer on that property with a camera. It's usually always in the same spot. Um, it, but the activity for bucks just, you know, consistently you're finding them, you know, on camera consistently just always happens during pre-rut in rut. Even in a, when I had a food plot that was there, they still weren't showing up until, until mid to late October. So it wasn't like they were, you know, living on the, on the property. The other part too, now I won't go as far as to say that they're not living there. When I say this place is littered with acorns, that's an understatement. I mean, there are places on this property where it's like I'm on roller skates. Like there's that, like they can't eat them all. Like there's every year, every year since we've had the property, I can walk through late season and there are still acorns on the ground that aren't rotted, that are still good that just haven't been eaten. And, and it's at different, and that's the, I think one of the struggles that, that I've had and just in getting deer on camera there in certain areas, you would expect them to travel consistently is that the, the, the food, once the acorns drop on that property, it's, and it's lights out. I mean, they're all over the place, you know, to where it's like, I almost feel like, I know this is like blasphemy, but it's like, I almost feel like one of the first things I would want to do would be go, go in and hunt uh, and cut out some, some oak trees just for it to kind of try to try to limit the areas where they were going to have that prime food source during that time, time of year to make hot spots because right now they could be anywhere. Now it's not a big property, so it's not like you couldn't find them, but you also can't go traipsing around because it's 60 acres. You end up, you know, moving all your, your deer all over the place for the hunt. So I have a comment on that. It's actually been, been proven uh, by Dr. Craig Harper that not every Oak, drops acorns and not every oak drops acorns or that drops acorns drops them equally mm-hmm. so you would be fine to go in there and find the ones that are the consistent droppers and kill some of the other ones drop some of the other ones get them timbered make some money whatever it could be and you will not be hurting you'll actually release those trees they'll be healthier they'll produce more acorns than they already were doing so you actually increase your harvest your uh, i'm sorry your acorn mass while kind of you know, locating those hot spots at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's just a thought I had what you were, what you were saying there. I had, then I had a question, where are the deer bedding around you? It doesn't sound like they're bedding on you too much, right? Right. I think, you know, there's one buck bed that I found where I was getting consistent pictures in the summer of like the better buck that would be on the property in the, in the summer. Like I'll get some, you know, four keys and some, you know, maybe like a young six point or whatever, but usually every year in one particular area, um, there's a water, there's a, there's a spring that runs through the property that bubbles up, uh, actually near where that, where the food plot was. And there's like a little, there's like, like a little knoll that's there that is just perfect for a deer to catch the rise ther- rising thermals in, in the, as the, you know, as the, as things are heating up, you know, from morning to, into afternoon. And that's where I was getting his, his pictures or a, the best buck on the property's pictures consistently year over. And when I scouted, I ended up finding the bed that he was using there. He was actually bedded right along that one open field, watching the field, essentially, right, and catching the thermals coming up over that little knoll so he could smell everything below him and see everything out in front of him, essentially. Um, so that is one area. So at the back north part of the property, it's it at one point it looked like someone did do some timbering back there. And then it obviously caught on fire because there's a bunch of stuff that's burnt. That's the thickest part of the property. That's where the does are bedding. There's a there's an ag field that's back there that is, 
I think, Brian, you'd be familiar with this. I think it's in the CREP program for PA, where it's kind of like the CRP kind of deal, I guess, if you go out in the Midwest or whatever, um, where the state's paying the the farmer. It's like an 80-acre field, roughly, that the state's paying the farmer to just basically go in and mow it in strips. Don't put any herbicide on it or anything like that. Just keep it kind of manicured to, to, you know, avoid soil erosion and, and not, you know, leach, you know, bad stuff into the water system in the area and stuff like that. So that's what's back there. On the opposite side of the road, whenever I was running trail cameras, I got a lot of movement coming actually across the road because there's a huge ridge. There's It goes down from the road, then up this huge ridge on the other side on the adjacent property to us. My bet was always that that was probably where the bucks were betting on that side just because of the uh, topography advantage. But I also saw, and the craziest things, I saw like one of the best bucks I've ever seen around there, I actually saw bedded along the road like literally like bedded in the tree line right along the road. And so I think that they're actually over on the neighbor's property would be my, would be my guess. And that's usually where the movement comes from. The other odd thing is that the deer on this property run, the deer that are on the east side of the property rarely, if ever make it to the west side of the property, like the bucks, the bucks that are in the north, never make it to the, to like the, never go east or west. They just move north and south it's the weirdest thing. Like there's almost like this line that goes through the property where they don't cross certain areas, which I've never seen that before. Like, Cause I literally two different years, I had bucks consistently on the East side of the property. Even though there was a food source on the, on the West side, never once got a picture of them over there ever, which kind of blew my mind. Cause I assumed that they would travel over there, but never once did they make it over to that. And it's not like it's a huge property. So it was a little odd. Yeah. So that, you have any theories on that? Why you think it might be that way? I don't. I mean, there are, there are, there are some fruit trees that are on the east side of the property, and I thought maybe they were just kind of hanging out around that. But it doesn't it doesn't provide enough for them to not want to go go fill fill their bellies. Um, I I just it, all truthfulness. I don't have a good theory. It just it baff, it baffles me. I actually even talked to Jeff Sturgis about it at one point and mentioned it to him, and it was kind of like that's the damnedest thing. Like, why wouldn't they? Yeah. Why wouldn't they make their way over there? And I don't know if it's because, you know, because there are so many acorns, they're just not having to make it over there. But that's just you know part of the season. Like you would think even during rut they would make it over there, but it just isn't the case. And I, I sure. I, I guess if I had to make a, if I had to venture a guess, because it's so much. I guess what I consider to be more of a rut property as I'm guessing that there's probably distinct doe families that are using the area that I, you know, this property and doe families that are obviously over on the neighbors on that, on that Ridge and where the does are betting on my property are probably on the North. And so those bucks are just never making it over to the West side of the property. They're just kind of hanging out on the East side, checking the doe bedding over there, then head, heading back over would be my guess. Yeah, that could be. That that makes sense for Cause sure. Because that, that would be where most of the bedding would be for the for where the does are at, and that's actually on that east side, on the south part, on the southern, on the I guess the eastern part of the property on the south end, is where I find most of the concentration of rubs, and there's always a ton of like doe beds in that area. So the uh, access for I'm assuming you have other family members that hunt this as well. No, nah, really, just my dad and I. So truthfully. Like, uh, I don't think, I think my cousin hunted it one day or two days last year. Other than that, nobody hunted it at all last year. Okay. So it gets so, hunted, it gets hunted very little. So is the access always the same? You guys access it the same way from the road or there, you have trails going through there? Um, 
there's a there's a trail down to the camp where the old camp was, which I'll use, which I've used to walk in in the past. Um, and then there's an access road that goes to where the cabin is at, and that's usually kind of like the way you would the way you would access your way in. I've accessed from the road. Um, you know, the, it just depends on where I'm gonna where I was hunting that day. I would try to figure out the best you know access to get in. But there's really three ways to get in. You're either coming in from the road or you're coming in from one of those you know. Uh, graded roads that were there that were you know that were put in for for access to a campsite or to the to the cabin which gotcha. used to just be old logging roads is all they were right right and and how does that lay out with the with the deer usage that you see them not crossing is that anywhere near the middle of that where it might be affecting that at all no it's like the one that accesses down toward that campsite is at the southern complete southern end so it's at the very edge of our property it's the, it's literally the property line between us and the next the next property over okay um the other one unfortunately yeah that was actually probably like <laughs> the best spot uh was where where the old man put the road into the cabin because uh, there was actually like a nice scrape line that was opening up every year along this area it's actually where i was getting yep. like the yep. better buck pictures we're along sure. that and I had pretty slick access into it. Um, the one year that I did hunt it, I think three days in a row before I went to Ohio, I actually had really good action there and actually saw two really good shooters um, that the bigger shooter ran the the smaller shooter off the scrape line. Like they basically had a tussle at the scrapes and, and, and took off no shot opportunity, but you know, so that unfortunately does kind of, in my opinion, is in kind of the heart of where you're it's close to bedding and stuff like that. What I would consider to be the bedding of the property. Sure. Yeah. Sometimes that's all it takes is a little thing like that that could disrupt the mature buck movement for sure. Yeah. So I might have to have you come out and walk it, man. It's not too far. It's in, it's in Bedford, Pennsylvania. So it's uh, only probably two hours from you roughly. Yeah. I'd be glad to do it. That'd be a fun day for sure. Yeah. We'd do that. Do a little, do a little podcast, but enough about, enough about my, my old man's property. I want to, I want to jump into, you know, translating some of you know what you guys have learned about habitat and how you kind of use that as you're as you're thinking about you know your travel hunts and things like that or maybe headed to areas where you don't have a ton of familiarity you know i guess let me ask this first question what what have been i guess a few things that you both have learned along the way that was something you didn't expect and jared we'll we'll start with you what what was like one thing that you know in investigating habitat stuff and you know, get involved in that and, you know, just kind of jumping in with both feet. What's something you learned along the way that you just totally didn't expect? Yeah, I think, um, cover is King is something that, that I really learned along the way. I think I didn't realize how thick of stuff you really want to be in when you're hunting out of state, in state, Northern Michigan, public land, whatever it is. I mean, we're rifle hunting in northern Michigan, and I could just use my bow the whole time where I get back into because it's so thick. That's where you have to be. And it, take, it took me a while to learn that stuff. And um, what I, and also on my property, when I first bought the property, I went in there with a, with a skid steer and a brush hog and mowed down, you know, an acre worth of area for food. Well, I've spent the last three years trying to build that back up, realizing that that huge open area is not what you want. And it just kind of <laughs> comes back to that cover makes them feel secure, makes them move before 10 PM gets them where you're in legal shooting hours in range. I say that's probably my number one thing, Clint. 
Yeah, no, I would agree. I would agree, man. Like as far as, you know, traveling or wherever you're hunting, it's like, I, I think once you get comfortable hunting in areas where you can't see any further than 15 yards, you're at the right spot. And it takes a little while to get comfortable with that because you like, you'll be walking to a place be like, good Lord, man, how's a deer even walk through this? You know, but it's like you get into a tree and you watch it happen. You're like, oh, well, that's how, <laughs> you know, oh, and it's then, crazy. Yeah, yeah, it's it's just very weird how thick they like, you know. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Brian, how about you, man? What was one thing along the way that you learned that you were kind of like, you know, that was an aha moment? Yeah, so on that similar vein, uh, transition areas. I mean, I wish I could have listened to Dan Infault 30 years ago to save me a lot of time. <laughs> right. But For just sure. seeing that taking a piece of property like we talked about that's just mostly open timber and uh, not really having any defined deer movement that can just kind of wander anywhere if they come through there and just seeing little bits of changes that you can make to softening up an edge of of hardwoods making it a little thicker along there just changing that up from a, a solid stand open timber to button up against something a little bit more you know, thicker and early, they call it early successional growth, which all that means is young forest, right? Just a little younger forest and, uh, transitioning into some CRP type stuff. And you just, it, it's like the light bulb goes on and says, Oh, this is where all the deer are moving now. Right now. Do you, I'm going to, I'm going to venture a guess here and say that with all the habitat work that you guys have, have done, I'm going to guess that when you walk into a place that you're unfamiliar with now, be it a piece of public or be it a lease in a new state or whatever the case is, I'm going to guess that the work that you've done in the habitat space has allowed you to kind of more quickly dissect an area and kind of understand where the, where the good stuff might be, so to speak. Is that, is that a fair assumption? Yeah, for sure. Uh, one thing that's, that jumps out at me now that never used to, is just finding browse on things mm. in these different areas. Uh, before I'd walk right past it and not even pay attention. But once you do a lot of habitat work and you start paying attention to what the deer are preferring and, and where the browse lines are, that stuff starts to jump out to you. And you tie that in with some other sign. You know, we're always looking for handfuls of sign, not just one or two things. So when you relate that back, you can find some pretty decent spots real quickly. Right. Jared, how about you, man? Is, is it kind of the same, same thing? Or is there anything that pops out to you from the habitat work that you've done that you now kind of, I don't want to say key in on, but that you really take more notice to when you're in unfamiliar places? Yeah. It's almost like the, the flip side of that question. It's like, what do you ignore now? Mm, that's so that's a great way to think about it actually. Yeah. Cause you can take a, you can take a block of a hundred acres and, and really narrow it down to I don't know, 25%, 10%, depending on how far I can see. If I can see more than like 30, 40 yards, kind of back to my cover thing. And if I can see that far, um, at least in the places that I hunt, it's probably, I should probably keep walking. And, and I know Dan talks about that stuff all the time too, you know, just omitting what you don't need and, and walking past some of the stuff that a lot of guys will get hung up on. And I just think that that just, kind of narrows down and you know your your area you need to focus on saves you time saves you days sitting in the woods staring at nothing so that combined with and maybe it just equals into that sunlight thing we keep talking about if you find a spot 
you know, where the, the sun's hitting the, the ground, it's either a swamp, it's either a thicket. I guarantee there's food there. I guarantee there's cover there. Um, it sounds so simple now. It just took me a long time to to really grasp that and just realize what you don't need to be focusing on. Yeah. I, I think that's the one thing that I've probably picked up on, you know, in all the years of doing this podcast is that, you know, and we've, we've all three had the luxury of, you know, interviewing some great hunters and talking to guys that are just, you know, killers and have been doing it consistently for years. And it always comes down to kind of, I don't want to say, I don't have a really great way to say it. So I'm just going to say it really bluntly, recognizing and taking the, you know, recognizing the obvious, not making it harder on yourself than it needs to be. Right. Like sometimes we get into the, we, sometimes we get into this beautiful mind kind of scenario where we're going to map stuff on a board and run all these strings all <laughs> over it. Right. And it's like, you know, and it's like, by the time you get done doing that, you're like, I don't know what the hell I just did or what it all, what it all means, <laughs> you know? And, but if you just start breaking it down into simple terms, I think Brian, you said it really well, whether it's public or whether it's private, at least, or whatever it's at, you really want the convergence of a couple good things. Right. One thing on its own doesn't say a whole lot, but if you have a couple very simple things like browse pressure, yeah, I've always kind of, I don't want to say I've always, I've noticed it in the past. I didn't probably start giving it its true value until I had a conversation with Johnny Stewart and that dude lives and dies by browse pressure. Now, not, I don't want to say lives and dies because he's, he's paying attention to a lot of puzzle pieces, but anyone out there that's ever listened to anything by him, like that dude is a killer and late, like he loves late season where most people hate it. All right. And it's all browse, browse, browse. His whole motto is, is if it doesn't have browse, I don't even pay attention to it. And I even pay attention to, I was out this past week and hanging trail cameras and I'm watching, I'm walking through areas. And then when I get into a place, you guys can probably, you know, uh, probably feel the same way. Spidey senses start to go off a little bit. And I'm like, okay, I feel like I'm getting into an area, you know, all, all of a sudden just start looking like, okay, what's the browse pressure look like? Cause it's, that's almost like my, um, you know how in conservation there's in indicator species, right? Like if one species is doing really well, then the habitat and like the, the landscape is doing sure. well. I exactly. almost kind of, I almost kind of look at browse as my indicator species when I'm scouting places and when I'm looking, like I start to look around, it kind of tells me then what the density kind of might be and how much time they're spending there. And especially for a dude like me on public where it's like, I don't have necessarily a food source for summer trail cameras. So I got to really look at what are they eating right now? And how much time are they spending here? And what, and like, what, how many deer do I think are going to be here? And what kind of picture and intel am I going to get? And so I think, man, browse pressure and those browse lines, Brian, that you talked about, I think are very uh, underrated, might be a way to put it by a lot of folks. Yeah, for sure. Especially if you're uh, hunting a lot of public land, like you talked about. Uh, Sometimes we find ourselves up in the middle of nowhere with just thousands and thousands of acres of forest around us and no ag. So you got to figure that stuff out pretty quickly because you don't have the luxury of finding a cornfield or a bean field or an alfalfa field where they might be going to. So, yeah, it's that's a huge piece of the puzzle. Yeah. Do you kind of follow a similar uh, similar rule there, Jared? Are you like, is that one thing you'll definitely key in on, too, is just what's the browse pressure look like in places where you're getting maybe unfamiliar uncharted territory so to speak or even just even if it's a place that you're familiar with just to kind of understand how much time they're spending in an area definitely definitely especially in the big woods setting like that i mean if you're if you're seeing a bunch of of low 
brush or, or herbaceous species being browsed on. You know they're eating it. You know they're eating it recently or currently that time of the year. That's important. Um, so then, yeah, then your spidey senses start going off. I like that. And then also, I think if you can match that with being able to identify some tree species, mm-hmm. that's something that I have come a, a decent way with since the beginning of all this. Before that, you know, I'm, I might have known what a white oak was and a pine tree, and and now you know we can kind of get out there and be able to figure out what's preferred, what's not, what they like, what they don't, and and that's kind of what goes in cahoots with that. Nice. Yeah. It's, it's, I'm glad you brought up tree species. Cause that's one thing that, you know, is something I'm, <laughs> it seems like every year it's on my to-do list to get better at <laughs> it, which means I haven't completely tackled it. Um, but I don't want to leave too much out, uh, you know, the cat out of the bag, but I think I'm going to be working on a video project where I'm going to be doing some, uh, habitat on, on some, on some public lands and kind of deciphering different habitat and usages for whitetails, et cetera. Um, uh, with a, with a, a Pennsylvania biologist, with a Pennsylvania state biologist to try to, because that, that sounds to, cool. Yeah. It's one of those things where it's just, you know, trying to sharpen the, the woodsmanship, you know, trying to have a better understanding of these things. So I understand like, you know, what the intent of a certain species of like, I forget who I was talking to the one day, but they were, they, they made the comment, and they're really good at this. They're really good at kind of picking out species. And I wish I knew who it was, but they were like, Oh, it's green. They just, they'll eat it. It's green. Right. It's like, <laughs> it's anything green. It must be good for them. Right. And, and the reality is, is that, well, just because it's green doesn't mean they're going to use it necessarily, you know, and it could be an invasive right. species right. or whatever the case was. And, you know, and I think it was um, when I did the session with the Pennsylvania game commission guys, I think that's who it was. That was, that was mentioning that. Um, and so it's just coming away with a better understanding of, what's out there what they're using, what time of year they're using, how valuable it is to them and stuff like that. So I can better qualify potential, you know, setups, not just from a terrain feature perspective, but you know, what are some other reasons to your point earlier, Brian, what are all the puzzle pieces that are going to make this a good spot? Right. Right. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. Not to get on, not to get on too much of a rabbit hole, but you talk about somebody saying, Oh, if it's green, they're eating it. I mean, people talk about trying to beat, deer's noses and and we preach wind direction all the time and using milkweed like you and and dan do and you know i'm all in favor of trying to tip the scales a little bit if you can i have no problem if people want to use sprays and scent lock and stuff but you got to remember you're not going to beat their nose and and to the point of the green stuff they've done studies that actually say that deer can actually know what green leaves have more nutrients in them that they need at the time and it has something to do with their sense of smell and it's it's just incredible so right not to get on that rabbit hole but yeah something to think about yeah no it 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 totally makes sense they're uh well they're they're their faces are built the way they're built for a certain reason it's so they can forage yeah and find the good stuff they're not just eating what's you know the highest thing available they're trying to find the most nutrient dense you know nutrient dense thing they can possibly find but so i want to shift gears here a little bit if you guys are cool with it and i want to start talking just a little bit about you know different states that you guys have traveled to um in the different i guess habitats that were that were unique that you that you encountered and how maybe you know you use that to your advantage or, you know, how maybe the habitat work that you've done in the past allowed you to see something differently on a particular hunt or in a state 
that maybe you would have overlooked otherwise if you weren't as in tune with, you know, those types of, you know, land features and habitat and stuff like that. So I guess let's start in, let's start in Ohio. Um, you know, Jared, let's, let's kick this one off with you. What, what to you in, in your opinion, I guess, is unique from a habitat standpoint that you found, and maybe you found success with it. Maybe it's something you found that was just completely anytime you set up around, it was a, was a, was a no go, but what are some things that are, that are unique there from a habitat standpoint that you've really, that you like, and that maybe you've keyed in on in the past? Sure. I think if you follow a, you know, so you say you have a long ridge that runs, you know, north south, and you have the the finger ridges, if you will, that kind of run off east and west, and then drop off down down the mountain. Um, at the very tips of those finger ridges, I find that because a lot of the, a lot of that country down there that I hunt's been logged, mm-hmm. so you have lots of cuts or or thickets or just early successional forests coming up in there. I found that those areas are areas to focus on. Um, I haven't been going down the finger, I don't think enough the, the last year or two. So I'm gonna, I've been thinking about that a lot sitting here and I think I'm gonna head down even further as it starts to drop off. Um, usually that is where it's very steep. <laughs> it's usually where the loggers could not get to those oaks based on their equipment and our equipment's changing these days and people can get a lot covered but some of the stuff that i've hunted i've seen those exact points being where the deer bed where the only mass trees that are real tall mature are still located dropping acorns and because it's been forested around it top of it bottom of it you get all that early successional growth which is food and cover right um that's kind of what I've seen in, in Ohio where, you know, where I started, I was throwing up a feeder down in the bottom. Right. So it's right. like, it's, that's, that's kind of how I transitioned. Right. What about you? What about you, Brian? Similar, similar kind of thing. Are you seeing anything different? Yeah. So one interesting thing that sticks out in my mind, uh, last year, I got familiar with a piece of property that I didn't hunt, but I put up some trail cameras just to see how the deer movement was through there. Uh, in this part of Ohio, there's a lot of uh, power lines and gas lines that run through some big woods scenarios. Um, not super steep terrain, but pretty rolling, and and uh, parts of it are really choked out with multiflora rows and beautiful deer cover. Not so much great for the habitat, but right. One thing that surprised me from the trail cameras that I had, a lot of mature bucks will use those uh, gas lines and power lines just to make you know, cover a lot of ground during the rut, just running downwind to those thick areas. And, and my cameras were blowing up on those openings. And that just really surprised me. I didn't think that they would be using them as much as they did. Hmm. Well, and were those power lines, were they pretty, it sounded like they were pretty thick, right? Just gnarly, all grown up and, and shitty. The actual gas and power lines, the, the, the utility companies keep them pretty trim. So, hmm. Yeah, it's kind of depending on the situation. Some of them where they butt up against some open hardwoods, not so much movement, but where they butted up against the thicker woods for sure. Well, yeah, there was a, there was one, it was actually in Ohio too. There was a, a power line, I guess, that I walked down to, I think it was the first year that I was there. And uh, a buddy of mine that I was with, he, he was actually hunting back in there. We were scouting and stuff like that. And this one was actually pretty grown up. And he actually had really good movement through there, but it was kind of what you're describing, which was 
open area, you know, relatively speaking, and just gnarly, gnarly thick. Like, uh, I'm trying to figure out how to describe it, but almost uh, like Narnia, <laughs> like just tiny, <laughs> big trees, just crap everywhere, you know, thick that you couldn't imagine how I, I literally asked him, I was like, man, I don't know how you plan to get a shot off in here. If you, if you see anything, um, he had a few, he had a few shot opportunities, but it was just, you know, just to kind of paint the picture. It was, it was crazy thick. So I can, I can totally see that. And those finger ridges, man, that you're talking about, it's funny. Cause I look for those anywhere that I go, um, anymore. I think, I think other people will refer to them as, uh, as secondary ridges too, Jared, if I'm not sure. mistaken. Right. Um, right, right. and I know some, you know, I've talked to some big woods guys where it's, you know, they kind of live and die by those things. And I've actually even heard, I forget who I was talking to, or maybe I was listening to someone talk about it. I forget. Because what they were saying was, was that, you know, during the rut, you know, you would think that those bucks would just run that long North and just say North and South Ridge for purposes of just our conversation, regardless of what direction it runs, but it's a North and South Ridge for this purpose. And say the, you know, the, finger ridges or the secondary ridges are off to the west side or whatever what they were saying was is that you know those younger deer those younger bucks will will kind of i don't want to say take the path of least resistance but they will use the that ridge top or maybe like the the edge of that ridge and kind of buzz down you know that downwind side so to speak or you know of that of all those finger ridges or all those secondary ridges along that main ridge right and this was a particular mature deer that this person was trying to kill um, you know, it was, it was a Boone and Crockett buck. And I think he played cat and mouse with him for like two years. And it was the second year he figured out that he wasn't really ever going to use that ridge except at night. And during the day, what he figured out was he was actually ridge hop. He was secondary ridge hopping. Like, so he was going from wow. ridge to ridge to ridge. He was in like, like thinking about it, he's taken the past path of most resistance really it's the shortest if you think about it it's the most direct he's just going from ridge to ridge to ridge to ridge like he was literally just ridge hopping and that was how he ended up killing him uh it was because that's interesting yeah and so you know i would be curious i wish i could remember who that was because i'd like to talk to them about that and it's funny because i think if i'm remembering it gets now starting to come back to me a little bit i think the guy was from ohio originally and moved to iowa and his experience i think was different in ohio and then when he was trying to kill that deer in iowa he managed to kill him by kind of hunting him a little bit differently, recognizing he wasn't going to use, you know, the long ridge. He was going to ridge hop to check doe beds, to check bedding areas. That's how he ended up killing him. So those secondary ridges, man, are, are killers. Um, unfortunately, everywhere it hunts, I seems like I don't really have them. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. It just seems like it doesn't matter where I'm at, you know, whether I'm, you know, people know I've been kind of up north in PA and the big woods and the Poconos kind of scouting and stuff like that. And you're literally on top of a mountain there. And so it's not like you get a lot of, you know, spine backs or anything like that. that you would get in like Southern Ohio where you get those secondary ridges and stuff like that. Um, and then just near where I live, it's a lot of, uh, it's just a lot of swamp, a lot of flat stuff, you know, so it's not a lot of, not a lot of, uh, crazy topography changes. So when I do get those, you better believe I will be on one of them. How about that? How, how far down are you, are you going to be on it? I mean, like my lease last year. We have so much sign way up on top, on the very top, mm-hmm. but I think it was all made at night. And then like, That's... I think 
you know, it's kind of just hard to tell. So I didn't go too far down because I didn't want to get into the betting. But then again, I should have been in the betting. So, yeah, I mean, I think it's all circumstantial, right? Yeah. Depending on the property or whatever, just, you know, letting the scouting tell you. But what I will say and what I've started kind of learning, especially with these secondary secondary ridges, and this is coming from Nathan Killen. Um, okay. You know, and talking to him and talking to, you know, whether it's him or Tony Peterson, it's just, there's been a few things that have started to stand out to me with some of these guys that travel a lot, hunt, you know, big woods or wherever they're hunting, but they're, they're getting it done consistently is like, they're not hunting the sign necessarily. Cause a lot of times that, you know, it is being made at night, you know, in, in a lot of instances. And so it's trying to figure out, well, how, how are they getting, getting there? You know, what's their, path of least resistance to get there for when they are getting there and starting to backtrack a little bit. And so I would probably hunt a little bit further down just in general. It's like, is there a bench that's below there somewhere that, you know, that even maybe you don't even see it on the map, but when you walk it, you can, you, you can notice it, you know, it's just like a small flat spot that kind of helps them get from one side to the other or something like that. Like I would look for something like that would probably be where I would start. Yeah, that makes sense. I, I focused more, I guess at the pinch point that the, that the ravine between the two finger ridges kind of creates, right? Mm-hmm. So if you follow the ravine all the way up, right there. Yeah. But the fact that you're saying that those bucks will hop ridge to ridge, even if it is up and down some steep terrain, they don't, you know, they're like mountain ghosts down there. They don't care. Well, um, yeah, yeah. I that's mean, that's interesting. Yeah, it's because it, I mean, I think where you're setting up is probably like a a good starting point. You know what I mean? Like I right. would, I would throw hunts at that. Right. Cause it's almost like you're sitting at the head of a drainage, right. Where they're going to exactly. Right. They're, to yep. Yeah. They're going to, they're going to use, you know, whatever that, you know, uh, elevation line is that they're going to use around the edge of that. It might just be down a little further than where you're at, but they might be using that to wrap around that finger ridge and then just hopping straight down and up to that next elevation line. So they're not going top to top to top, you know what right. I mean? And they're also not making that S curve around every finger ridge. They're like making a U hop down, make a U hop down, make a U hop down. Right. Yeah. And that would be kind of what I would, I would think. And I would try to maybe, you know, hell, if nothing else, I would stick cameras in those places and just see, because we've seen that in Southern Ohio too, in some big woods pieces where, I mean, Chad was in a, in a tree the one day. And I mean, we would have swore deer would have come, come, you know, through this one area where he was set up. And he watched a younger buck and he just four wheel drived it straight up over the steepest part of the, the, <laughs> the spine back. Like it would made no sense. You know what I mean? Um, wow. and so it's just, they do, you know, they'll surprise you, right? They, they don't always do what you think that they're going to do. And that's one of the things I started picking up with from some of these guys, you know, is just forcing yourself to get away from the big sign, forcing yourself away to get away from the sign and hunt their movements and not necessarily their, their, their sign and their destination, if that makes sense. In some instances, yes, you know, you know, primary scrape with like hammer rubs around it and it's got like three trails converging there. Well, yes, you know, bingo, right there. You got a really good opportunity, but big rub or a bunch of rubs or whatever. It's like, well, he's, he's here at some point. I just need to figure out how and when and why. Right. And that to me is like when you start to backtrack and, and start to think about how you hunt off the sign and it's counterintuitive and it's the hardest damn thing in the world to do. Cause I still can't do it. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's like, I see sign. That's what makes it fun. Yeah. It's like, I see sign and I want to walk toward it. And I'm like a moth to a flame. You know, it's like, yeah, 
it's still, it's, it, it's, it's hard to do. And I, and I know I've wasted a lot of hunts, you know, doing that, but you know, let's, uh, let's shift to Illinois, man. Um, Jared, you know, what's, what's something you've seen in Illinois that you've, that you've kind of keyed in on from like a habitat perspective that you've found that has been, has been good to you. And that, and this is an area that I have no experience whatsoever. Illinois is one of those States I've never been to yet. Oh man. Uh, for some reason, Illinois has been good to me. I don't know what I did, but I, I love that state. Um, at least for the deer hunting. Right. And I think, uh, I think it's, it's a lot more crop driven there that, that I found late season you hunt over beans or, or cut corn from where I've been. Um, but one of the, the main habitat things that I learned from habitat management and helping out people in, in Kentucky and, and Illinois is bush honeysuckle. They got a bunch of it down there. And <laughs> while it is invasive and, and you want to kill it, um, they use it as cover. They'll, they'll browse on it if the property doesn't have anything better around. And literally it's, it's like an edge. So you have an edge where the, the BH meets the open woods. Um, I found doe beds, I found buck beds, I found browse. Um, it's, it's not a bad spot to, to focus on if that's your cover and hmm. if there's no real, real good food around, otherwise some topography, but, but I mean, they're, you know, if it's, if it's cold and, and you have the, the grains that seems to be, you know, just, what's the word I'm looking for? Just standard, right? Just right. very standard. Yeah. Um, that bush honeysuckle is interesting though. That that's like the, yeah. that's a little bit of like a Jedi move there. What's it, it like? Is. What's, what's it look like? I, I don't um, know, the, I don't small, know that I've ever seen it. Small leaves. Yeah. It's got real small leaves. It's kind of like a bushy autumn olive looking thing. Um, it's kind of viney. It's usually the first thing that greens up in the spring. So if you're walking out there, you, you can see it then it's, it's in a shaded timber area. If you have cover, it's probably bush honeysuckle. Hmm, um, it's kind of a bold statement, but and like a general statement, but cause every property is different, but I've seen a lot of it and it's, it's a lot of guys cover sometimes. Right. right. Nice. Brian, what about you, man? Have you spent any time in Illinois or is that the, an area you haven't made it, made it to yet? Yeah. So I've, uh, done some land plans there for our land plan service uh we've also got a buddy out there a couple of buddies actually that own farms uh one thing's interesting about illinois and kansas also like clint we're so used to the farmers farming everything in the valleys here in pennsylvania and then you have to go up from there so yeah. all the all the deer are moving into the low areas and we know how tough it is to hunt low areas with the thermals and and the constant wind shift and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. What I found interesting about Illinois and uh, Kansas is their, their farming's more on the top and then the hollows drop away from that. So it's almost the reverse of what we're used to doing in PA. Hmm. So you've got your, your Creek bottoms and things that drop off of where all the ag is. So it's a little bit easier to hunt because you're hunting up high and you're not dealing with those thermals and, and the wind, the crazy swirling winds like that. That's interesting. It's funny you mentioned that because the uh, the one family property actually sets up like that. It's actually opposite of what you would expect for PA, where the all the crop fields, all the fields on my father in law's property are all on the tops of what would be ridges. When you look, if you just flip it on okay. top of, when you just look at the topo and you don't see the satellite, you would say, "Oh, here's a good ridge, and here's a good ridge, right?" And then when you flip the satellite on, it's like, "Oh, well, those are all ag fields." Sure. <laughs> 
you know, um, which, you know, made it, well, it didn't make it easier for access there because the access in that property was pretty, pretty harsh. Um, if I'm being, being truthful, it's it just, there's not great access on that property in general, but it, it was good. You, you did have decent access for evening hunts. I should say you could set up well, like, cause you could get into, you know, field edges and stuff like that without blowing stuff out. And if you, you could glass as well, you know, during the summer and understand how they're getting in and out and you could set yourself up to give them the wind in the appropriate place where you're not going to have your thermals kill you either, you know? So, sure. but yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting, man. So, you know, what's, uh, Jared, have you, have you hunted Kansas as well? Or, or is that a state that's still on your list? It's still on my list. My buddy Brad invited me out there a couple of years ago and, um, I screwed up, didn't make it happen. I should have. And, and I haven't been there. And I swear, Clint, everybody I talk to and hear from now is going to Kansas. Like, uh, man, don't tell I don't, me that. I don't, I, well, I know. And, and I don't, and, well, I mean, I listen to your podcast, so maybe one of those people is, is you. But it's like, I know some guys who are going out there. I know some guys who went out there last year. They did well. Um, the hunting public guys seem to do well. So mm-hmm. I think uh, I've never been there. I truly want to, especially after watching Brian's group of guys last year go out there and, and you know. Unfortunately three for Brian, for four. You get one, but they got there three for four within like yeah. two days, three days. Nice, nice. Um, yeah, that's. I'd love to try it. I just haven't been there yet. Yeah, I just talked to uh, Mr. You know the legend Eddie Claypool, right? I just had had him on, and he uh, he was dropping some knowledge. You know, he's obviously you know he's from Oklahoma, but he hunts Kansas a lot, and um, I was picking up some pointers from him, of course, on the podcast. Then we we talked for probably like. Good Lord. I don't know. We talked for probably like an hour and a half. And then I talked to him for probably like an hour afterwards, just like offline, like talking about Kansas and and stuff. And, uh, you know, he, you know, basically my takeaway was, you know, basically what he was saying was like, look, if, if you want to kill, if you want to go out and just have a good time and this is, you know, he was like, in this instance, if you just want to go out and have a good time and see some one forties or whatever, he was like, then hunt the sign. He's like, it, you'll, you'll run into it everywhere put yourself in one of those spots. He's like a good deer will run by you. He's like, and you'll have a blast. He's like, you want to kill giants? He's like, you got to get away from the sign. This kind of goes back to what I was saying earlier, you know, with like the finger ridges and stuff like that. He's like, you got to get off the sign. You got to go into places that are just completely like out in the middle of nowhere where you wouldn't expect a deer to be ever. He's like, and that's where the big boys will be at, you know? And I just, I said, you know, look, I'm looking to have a good time and kill like a, a good deer. Like <laughs> I was like, I'm, I'm not, uh, I'm, I'm not, I'm not, in, I'm not in Eddie Claypool's uh, league trying to kill giants. You know, I was like, so um, we'll just go try to have a, have a good time. But the thing, Brian, that he mentioned to me that I wanted to bring up to you just for, you know, food for thought when you go back and, and, and uh, Jared, you mentioning the secondary ridges, because, you know, what he was basically saying was like, look, if, you know, especially, we were talking a little bit about early season. And he does a lot of rut hunting. And he, what he basically said was, is like where he has found action in early season is like, if you follow those uh, ditches and he's like, and you'll, you know, it'd be just like a river or just imagine it as a river where it's like, you know, here it's winding down. Then there's a tributary that breaks to the right. And there's a tributary that breaks to the left. And he's like, you go down a couple of these kind of turns off of this, you know, off this ditch, you know, a second or third kind of branch off of it. He's like, you go back to the back end of that. He's like, that's always gnarly thick back here. He's like, and that's where bucks are typically betting. It's like, they're not usually in the main ditch. They're off these like secondary and tertiary ditches. He's like, and that's where, you know, bucks will be bedded. And I was talking to Chad about it. Cause Chad and I are going out to hunt it together. 
And I was saying that to him and he was like, that's interesting. I was like, well, if you think about it, I was like, it's not, oh, it is, but it isn't. I was like, cause it's, if you flip the topography upside down, it's like a secondary ridge. Right. Right. You I know? can picture it. I, I saw those exact scenarios yeah. that you were talking about. In yeah. Kansas. And so, and then it made me think, Jared, when you brought that up and I was like, well, they, you know, those bigger deer off sometimes will ridge hop those secondary ridges. And it all of a sudden made me think, okay, maybe my between is in between those ridge in between those, uh, in between those secondary ditches, if you will, because it would act the same as like a secondary ridge. Interesting. So, yeah. So it's, just my, yeah. Pon- my pontification as we've been sitting here chatting tonight. So no, Brian, that, that makes perfect sense. Um, I, I was wondering, I wanted to ask you what, what are your thoughts on the same question in Iowa when you were in Iowa? Cause I hunted pretty close to where you were at, I believe. As far as like, what did I find that was, uh, that I, that I found success with yeah, like or anything that I thought was interesting to you that, yeah. Anything stick out to you that you were like, yeah. I need to repeat that situation. Uh, a couple things. I, th- not necessarily the repeat, but I think that it took me a minute to figure out how to play the topography because it's not as, it's not as intense as you would maybe think or hope. Right. So like the changes in elevation aren't as drastic. It's, it's a little, it's more gradual. And so it took me a little bit to kind of figure out how to like, where's the upper third, <laughs> you know what I mean? Cause it's just so, yeah. gra- it's so gradual that it's not like, there's not like a definitive military crest to start like looking for, for betting or anything or anything like that. Um, it, it actually, it, it, it was really kind of a simple, I guess a simpler, approach where I had to, this might sound like a a shitty thing to say, but I had to scrutinize the sign a little less coming from Pennsylvania because I'll put it this way, like a rub in Pennsylvania, unless it's in like the thick stuff and you can appreciate this in Michigan, man. It's like, unless it's in like the thick gnarly stuff, like it's not worth anything. You know what I mean? Like it just, and if they're using it frequently, it's all at night, you know, it's just, that's the reality of it out there. I was getting deer. I was seeing, you know, four and a half year old deer, 10 scrapes in broad daylight on a, on a skitter trail. Like I, I wouldn't see that here. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like that's, you know, maybe Absolutely. Steve Shirk would maybe see some of that, you know, up, up in the, you know, up in the Alleghenies just because it's so big and like the pressure isn't quite as intense. Cause it's just, I mean, there's mountain, it's mountains. Some of those deer don't see people. I would, I would guess, you know, sure. But you know, so that was one thing that I had to kind of adjust was that the sign, I had to qualify the sign a little, a little bit differently. And then the wind there was just constant. Like it was like windy every, so you didn't really ever get a day that was, that you were going to get like a, like a predictable wind necessarily. I just found that the wind swirled there a lot and it's probably because there wasn't a, like a real way for it to be funneled, you know, like in, you get into some places I deal with some of that here because it's a lot flatter, but you know, when you're in Southern Ohio or whatever, you can get into a place in the, in the, those ridges where you can get a somewhat of a consistent wind, you know, not always, you're always going to get a little bit of a swirl, but if you've hunted a spot often enough, you'll know, like when I get a North wind it's, and if it's stiff enough, it's going to rip through here and it's going to channel through this way. Right. Like, and, and you get a little, you kind of get a little bit more predictability there. I just found like it was just super variable. Like it, and what I had to start doing for certain setups was trying to find in an area that I wanted to hunt a draw that was sheer enough 
that I could get that consistent kind of wind kind of flowing down through that draw and then also to help me play my thermals because the thermals weren't like, you know, if you're in hill significant hill country, it's like you can feel those thermals, but in some of those places where you have those rolling hills and stuff like that, like you're going to get it, but it's not nearly the same effect. So if you needed some thermal help to help your prevailing wind, like you needed to, you needed to find a setup where you're going to have something sheer close to you to help you. Um, otherwise your thermal wasn't going to kind of, have as much of an impact as maybe you would hope or maybe that you would need. Those were probably the biggest things that for me that I had to, that I had to kind of calibrate was that. Great tips. Great info. Yeah. I don't, I don't know if that, I don't know if that makes sense, but unfortunately I didn't figure that shit out till like the 16th day. (laughs) (laughs) So, (laughs) but that big deer that I missed though was, was that one that, uh, I saw him at like whatever it was. 11 o'clock or whatever in the afternoon broad daylight working a scrape line on a two track unbelievable yeah and he was coming from like it it was warm and he was the reason i set up there was because one because i found a bunch of scrapes i found a rub that was neck high and but it was i was headed down to this this lake that was at the bottom because it was it was a little abnormally warm like a stretch of days and so i wanted to get close to water because i figured you know buck in the rut might need a little drink of water or at least maybe lay low while he's bedded down in the morning while he's waiting for does to get back to bed you know and wanted a place cool and he would probably go to water and so that's that was my thinking behind that and so and, and it and it worked out i just missed the sh- i just screwed up the shot so done that yeah, oh, man, yeah. do it long enough. It'll, it'll happen. But man, I've, I've kept you guys here for a little over an hour. I want to be sensitive to your time. I know we all have, have families and, and, and jobs and, and stuff to do. So I want to be sensitive to your time and let you guys get going before I do that. If you wouldn't mind, let the listeners out there know where they can find out more about each of you and where they can find out more and find the, the habitat podcast. Sure. No, I appreciate that Clint. And, and thanks for having us on. Really enjoyed this chat with you really enjoy your podcast um congrats again on 60 years man um our all of our stuff is at habitatpodcast.com that's the name of our podcast habitat podcast uh, you can find that anywhere you listen to podcasts um we have lots of information on our website you know different articles and blog posts uh all the all the episodes anything you want to you want to figure out at our website we also have a facebook youtube and instagram all habitat podcast so thanks for that yeah, you bet. And uh, Brian, where can, where can people catch up with you at? Instagram, Facebook, all that good stuff? Yeah, easiest way to find me is Habitat Podcast. You'll see me commenting or uh, Jared will tag me in some posts. My name's on there. I'm Brian Scott, just my first and middle name on Facebook. Uh, YouTube, like Jared said, we're trying to get that built up. We've been adding, trying to add two videos a week now. It's, it's We're really ramping it up, so... Appreciate it if you check that out and subscribe while you're there. And yeah, anywhere else you can type us in, you'll be able to find us somewhere. Awesome. Well, I appreciate you guys coming on. Everyone out there listening, be sure to head over and check out their podcast. Go to their YouTube channel. Give them a subscribe. Check out their content. And uh, fellas, I'm sure I'll be talking to you beforehand, but I hope your summer scouting goes well. Hope you have some uh, good velvet trail camera pictures this summer. Thanks, buddy. You too. Good luck this fall. We'll talk to you. Appreciate it. 
All right, folks, that is a wrap for today's show. I'd like to thank all of you for listening. And if you haven't yet, please head over to iTunes and leave us a five-star rating. And hell, while you're at it, head over to YouTube and give us a sub there, too. I'd be super appreciative if you'd be able to do those two things for me. And before I shut this thing down, I need to give a big shout-out to our partners who continue to help us make this podcast possible. Tethered, Exodus Outdoor Gear, Skull Brew Coffee Company, and Maven Optics. And until next time, we'll see y'all. All right, gang, the new Truth merch is in stock at truthfromthestand.com and on YouTube below any of the Truth From The Stand videos. I've got some new hats, beanies, t-shirts, long-sleeve t-shirts, and sweatshirts. There's even a new do-hard-shit hat for those of us who like to embrace micro-dosing adversity. So head to truthfromthestand.com and check out the new gear and use the code TRUTH, T-R-U-T-H, and save yourself some cash on the new gear.